in in any retreat, I like to give at least one talk on the sense fields, uh, direct sensory experience, investigation, and so forth. And the guided meditation this morning was along those lines. It was it was a direct pointing into the sense field, starting with the the physical sense, the body sense, and into sound and the visual experience. So these are very potent types of investigations. And like any investigation that we do, whether it's self-inquiry, investigation into the nature of thought, disidentifying from thought, other types of practices, uh, work in the, in the sense fields uh, also releases a lot of repressed or can release a lot of repressed material even though it doesn't seem directly connected to that. It doesn't seem necessarily directly connected to the emotion body. But when we engage the sense fields in a particular way, in a, an intentional way, uh, we, we really amplify presence. And presence has this, this magic way of opening spaces in consciousness, opening shadow space, and bringing that in, out of the shadow into consciousness. So... Just know that this work as well uh, is also a form of shadow work. It's uh, it's also subtle. So if it doesn't make a lot of sense or if you're not really picking up what I'm pointing to when I talk about this sense field work, that's okay. Just feel into what I'm saying. Uh, just just kind of be simple about it. Don't, don't overthink it. The, the key with this is not to overthink it. It's very easy to overthink uh, this kind of work. And the reason for that is actually a very simple one. And that is we think we're hearing, seeing, and feeling, but we're actually thinking, thinking, and thinking. So we're not blind, deaf, and uh, without sensory experience all day long, but, but attention touches into those experiences very briefly and very quickly turns into a thought turns into a perception, turns into an internal model of the world, and then turns into an internal narrative, right? The dialogue and all of it. That happens so quickly. And it's really often not until deeper stages of realization that we become clearer. We be, it becomes obvious to us that that's actually what's happening. So uh, for instance, uh, one of the questions this morning came up of once I'm experiencing this clarity in the visual field, like what next or now what? Uh, there really isn't a now what. If if that if that experience if that that clarity in the the visual field is truly non dualistic, you won't be asking what next. It's quite something actually. It's it's quite enticing. It's quite all encompassing. Um, you know, with every fiber of your being, there is nothing next. There isn't a next. There isn't a before and after. There isn't time and space. That's how clear the non-dual realization actually is. Now, you can have a taste of it before the realization, for sure. Uh, but when you start wondering, well, what to do next? And how do I work with this? And that's your mind talking. That means you've touched in very briefly, had some experience, and then turned it into an experience, turned it into a process. The mind wants to think about it. That's a bounce. That's a bounce back, right? So when I'm doing these guided meditations around the sense fields or when I'm going to talk directly about it in this talk, um, what I'm really just encouraging you to do is just to go in and stay in and note and just be alert enough to notice when you're not. 
when when the thoughts are coming back, when you're analyzing what's happening, when you're thinking about how to do this and the practices and what to do next and how to, whatever, whatever the mind is chattering on about, notice that, then return right back to the senses. Just listen to what I'm saying. And hopefully I'm pointing you, pointing you right back to it. And at some point you'll easily be able to point yourself back to it, or you can read various doctrine that, that is good at pointing you back to it. So, so with the senses, it's, it's very simple stuff we're talking about here. Very simple and very direct. In some circles, um, they they use the term a lot, direct experience, to refer to this. And I, I think it's good. I mean, it's a good term. It's a good phrase because it makes a distinction between reflected experience and direct experience. But I think it can actually take any individual practitioner a good amount of time and a good amount of realization to actually know the distinction between the two. You can easily go your whole life and not ever knowingly realize direct what a direct experience is at all. You can have secondhand, which are reflected internal mental experiences your entire life. And as you go, as you go along and the identity structure becomes more and more solidified, so that feels like more and more what's real and everything else is unreal. It even gets to the point where we don't trust the senses. Um, we don't even know what they are anymore. We interpret thoughts about the senses as the senses. The other caution I'll give about this or something to kind of look out for a bit is if you're very scientific minded, when I'm talking about the senses, if you are a, a neurologist or a neuroscientist or someone who reads that kind of stuff, it may be very easy for you to start to think about neural pathways or neurotransmitters or materialism versus idealism or the philosophical stuff. It's very easy to get in your head about any of this stuff or photons or photons striking your retina, like you don't experience any of that. You don't experience any of that. You learned it, right? So so I'm just talking to someone who really gets tied into this stuff, right? Materialism, anti-materialism, idealism, right? You, you never saw, you never experienced any of that directly. Those aren't direct experiences. Those are learned concepts, right? Photons. You've never experienced a photon directly, <laughs> not a photon, not light emanating. You've, you've never experienced um, a retina, right? Directly, not in the way we're we're talking about. So, if our minds are starting to come up with these concepts during this, right? Uh, that's not what I'm talking about at all. It's it's so much more simple than that. It's just what's right in front of your face before you make before the mind makes any movement at all, including I am. It's before any sense of that's out there, I'm in here, I know what that is, labeling it, even labeling it with a color, labeling separation, one object from another, all of that is learned. We learned all of it. It's not that it's unnecessary that we learned it, 
But when we're talking about this kind of practice, it's important to recognize the distinction between thinking about what's happening and just being completely engaged in the sense fields. They're, they're experientially worlds apart. So, so be a little alert if your mind tends to get revved up about philosophical stuff or scientific stuff when it comes to this, this practice. And if it does, um, if it does often, it's a, it's just a bit of fear, really. It doesn't, it may not feel like fear, but it will feel like interest. But once the, um, bruised and battered ego calms down enough, there's not, there's, there's, there's enough clarity there. The filters have dropped enough that you, you stop perceiving yourself apart from things. Then you'll see how it actually can trigger a fear response pretty pretty vividly to to fully engage the sense fields because they really do replace you it's it's in one sense it's all over you can't be something anymore when you realize that you never were you can't be somewhere anymore when you realize you, there, you were never anywhere specific the idea of itself and the idea of somewhere kind of co-arise in a way they're interrelated so that's a fear that can be a fearful experience especially when it's not a conceptual thing, like I just said, but a physical direct experience of just dissolving into reality or into this. That's what it feels like at some point. And from there you realize, oh my gosh, I can see how I've been running from this through all these kinds of distractions of the mind, you know, conceptual stuff and mind wanderings and inter you know, being interested in ways of describing it and doctrine and all of it. Yeah. So these are just some sort of background um, pointers to emphasize that this is a very simple, very direct, very innocent uh, approach or engagement with the sense fields. But uh, it requires a little bit of vigilance to notice when we've bounced back into the mind, we bounce back into concepts, we bounce back into self saying, oh, I'm here and that's out there in one version or another. So If all that's helpful, great. If not, you don't really have to think about it because what we're going to talk about teaches itself. It's immediately available all the time. So as we did this morning, let's start with the physical sensation field. Um, breath is an interesting thing. I've noticed this throughout the years that, um, some teachings are, are very breath oriented. So Zen Buddhism, for instance, often starts with breath practices and so forth. And there are, there are all kinds of breath practices. Uh, but it, when I was younger, I didn't at all understand as simple as it is. And as silly as this may sound to many people here, I didn't understand breath meditation, breath work, breath counting, like something about it. Breath counting probably made sense, but it seemed probably too simple for me to try, I think. But something about following the breath and just feeling your breath, like I didn't get it. It didn't make sense to me somehow, as strange as that is. I just didn't vibe with it. Or when I would try, it just didn't feel meditative at all or made me think a lot or something. Um, 
in retrospect, it probably was because it wasn't maybe because it wasn't broken down in simple enough terms for me, at least because I was so in my head. So it became conceptual so quickly like breath. Well, I'm always breathing. Of course I know I'm always breathing. Why, you know, um, why do I have to remind myself that I'm breathing? That's kind of the things that would go on in my head when people are saying, just notice the breath, notice the breath is, you know, the whole environment or whatever people say about breath. Um, my mind would just get revved up and it didn't make any sense to me pretty quickly. Uh, perhaps, I don't know, cause I can't go back in time, but perhaps if someone had said somehow shown me how to find the sensations of breath, what it feels like to feel the chest move, what it feels like to feel the belly move as you breathe in and out, even by really focusing your attention in a certain way, you can feel what breath feels like coming in and out through the mouth, like breathe the breath moving over the tongue. Um, these kinds of approaches, uh, um, can be really powerful. And I do think that the breath being there all the time, it's a, it's a good entry point because it, it has that voluntary involuntary aspect to it. You can, you can voluntarily regulate the breath. And if you don't think about it, it's already regulating itself. So, um, it's a good place to start, but when I talk about the breath, I, I really want to emphasize that I'm talking about the sensation of breathing, not talking about imagining the body or imagining the lungs or imagining the chest moving, right? If you're staring forward, if you're looking forward, you don't see a chest, you don't see lungs, you don't see air movement. That would have to be in the mind. That would be imagined. But the sensations are there. And the sensations of the chest moving. And we can just take in the sensation. If your if your eyes closed, uh, if having your eyes closed helps to tune into this, then feel free to close your eyes. Um, this is somewhere between a meditation and a talk, I suppose. But as you notice the breath, sensations of the breath moving. you notice how natural it is. The movement itself is quite natural. It pretty quickly finds its own pace. And that pace, the movement is simply sensations rearranging themselves. Now, if you just stay in the sensations, let those be the one um, route of input <laughs> of information or experience just the sensations themselves then you may notice that the space in which they seem to occur without imagining it really isn't in some space shape like the body It's really not so much down in a specific place we would call the lungs or chest if we imagine it. We just feel those sensations. You may notice them kind of without boundary. You may notice them behind and front of wherever the center of attention appears to be. 
above or below. You may find them intermixing with other sense fields, like sound. It's like sound sensation. Now, if you are experiencing this as this non-localized, maybe spacious, let's call it spacious, field of experience, on occasion, but I want you to stay with this, the sensations themselves as you listen, on occasion, the mind might say, whoa, this is trippy. This is, this is psychedelic or I don't know where I am, or wow, what's happening, or what just happened. Just know, if it says that, you don't have to go down that mind road. You don't have to think about how trippy it is and think about how you're going to tell other people about it. This is a common thing, so that's why I say it. Just let those thoughts come and go. Just return back to the sensations. This is neither trippy nor mundane until you qualify it as such. It's neither special nor neutral until we analyze it as such. Staying with the primary sensations, the sense field can be sensory, sound, intermixed. Can be sensory, sound, visual, intermixed. Very simple. We stay with this. It may feel like it's sort of undulating, moving like waves, or it may not. It may just feel like some kind of vast field. It may feel like there's no center at all. But just keep letting those sensory quanta the sensory information in raw form define experience. This is neither far nor near. I say this because our minds often try to start with an analysis, a point of analysis to start thinking So the, the sensory experiences are neither intense nor subtle, really. They're neither coming nor going. The whole of this experience, the whole, the whole entirety of this experience is neither coming nor going. It's neither time-bound or timeless until we start to try to label it. It's neither empty nor full until we try to label it. With the visual field specifically, just take it in as a mosaic. What a newborn might see 
before it has an internal dialogue of any kind, before it's plastering some overlay of distance and value over its visual experience. It's just pure seeing, just like this. You have access to that. You're also pure seeing before the mind starts to do something about it, do something with it. But in this moment, there's nothing to do with it. So it's pure seeing. You may notice any shape there. You may notice where one shape seems to stop and another shape next to it seems to begin. Perhaps a light and a dark margin of anything. Just notice something like that. Stay with the visual. Wide open perspective, as well as the physical and the sound. But we're working a little bit in the visual here. So notice you could label, I'm just going to use the example, something dark and something light, which happen to be next to each other. You can use two colors or anything that looks like a line. So you could say, well, one of them is this, you could label it, and the other is that. That's what makes those two distinct objects, for instance. Now, what if you don't label it? What if you don't say that? What if you don't add those labels that you learned? Look right at it. Is there actually a boundary? You could start to imagine, well, one of them's made out of this and one's made out of that. So I know they're different, different material, but those are all thoughts, right? You don't find that in the visual experience at all. Not even a little bit. So return yourself to that visual experience and don't imagine materials. Don't imagine composition. Now, how do you know there's a boundary? How do you know there's separation? Do you see separation? Or do you just see that? <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you see separation or do you just see that? If you want to get more detailed with this kind of exploration, you can look right at the very, very, very edge between... Again, something light and something dark. Something of one color versus another color where conventionally an object would end and another one would begin. Just look right at the very, very edge. Don't try to make anything happen at all. Don't try to figure it out or discern anything. Just look at the edge of it. What appears like an edge. Now take away anything you've ever known about edge. Look at it without edge. Now you may notice the quality change somewhat in the visual field. That's perfectly okay. You don't need to think about it. No taking notes here your experience. 
you may notice what we would conventionally call two objects and say, well, one is closer than the other. That's that's how I know they're two different things. Okay. Let's keep looking. Do you see something called closer out there? Or is that an interpretation? Were you thinking closer before I said it? If you weren't, well, then it's obviously not in the visual experience. So what if we take closer and farther away? What is the visual experience telling us now? It's not telling us that. It's not telling us anything about distance, that's for sure. Now, this one might feel a little strange, but we're going to just notice that whatever's out there, apparently out there, as we have been, and then ask ourselves, well, how do we know it's out there? Where does out there arise? Is it in the visual experience at all? Or like these others that we've discussed, it's learned. It's, in one sense, plastered over the experience, but it's not really because there's nothing out there like that. We actually have to turn our attention inward to thought and narrative to experience something called out there, which is purely conceptual. So we return our attention right to this visual experience and say, what is this now when there's no out there anymore? Remember, no taking notes, no recording your experience to tell yourself later or to tell your friends. Just let the experience clarify itself naturally. Now, if you like the approach of saying, out there is a thought, let's stay here in this visual experience and then wonder to ourselves, what about in here? Is there an in here that's aware of that? And returning again to the visual stimulus, does it have an in here there somewhere? Is there a suggestion that it's confirming an in here regarding it? And in here, apart from it, is it suggesting it at all? Or is in here also a thought that we're using a visual experience to support? So now we can ask ourselves regarding this experience, this visual experience, pure experience. What is this now when there's no out there and no in here?
this kind of simplicity of approach is exactly how, well, it's one way to work with non-dual. Where are you experiencing an in, inside? Where are you experiencing an outside? It seems like we're using the visual field all the time to confirm that. But as we just confirmed, there's nothing in the visual field that suggests that at all. At all, nothing. Nothing that even suggests it. It's all thought. So inside and outside are thought. But you don't even need to conclude that. Just stay with the visual experience. I, I can't help but notice the comments coming down. So it's kind of funny because they're perfect examples of what the mind always does with this stuff. Someone saying visual experience is always in the occipital lobe. So I'm saying, do you see an occipital lobe right now? That's a thought, right? Or someone saying even, even visual experience itself is a conceptualization. Well, actually what you just said is a conceptualization. <laughs> Sorry, now Alexa's talking to me. Um, it's a, it's such a hard thing to explain how to stay in the pure sense field because the bounce back is so quick and it's so it see it feels seamless. It feels like the same thing that was just happening, where we gaze into the visual field. And then we come back and think about it some. Feels like there's just one continuous experience happening, but there isn't actually. They're very distinct. One is raw, empty, intimate, non-dualistic, undescribable experiences. They're not even experiences. Um, and one is self, actually. One is the thinking self keeping track, understanding, making conclusions. So how do you stay out there? Um, one answer, and it's probably a reasonably good answer, is that much of the time, I can't say anything um, universal about this because people are so different. Much of the time, this becomes much easier once there's equanimity, once reactivity has gone. Because reactivity makes it harder to trust the senses, actually. It makes it harder to trust 
not doing anything, not thinking anything, not analyzing. And reactivity, as I've said before, is, is really only in thought. We only react to thoughts. We only react to interpretations. So if there's a lot of reactivity, then we're identified with reactivity. We're identified as being reactive. That feels like who we are. Reactivity feels like who we are. That's why it's one of the fetters of self or two of, two of the fetters of self or whatever. We identify with it. It feels like I have to react. I have to, right? Because we're identified with it, it feels like our identity is wrapped up in that. And that's all in thought. It's all in concept. Ultimately, it's an interpretation. So that makes it very difficult to stay in the pure, raw sense fields for very long. So um, that's a bit of an aside in regards to what we're doing here. But if this is enticing, interesting, and yet you find it very um, fleeting or evasive, then look for reactivity. Do some react more reactivity work. See where you may be reacting to things around you and so forth. Or just meditate for a long time. Cultivate a samadhi. And this is typically easier when the mind is just generally calm. So staying in just this empty visual experience. There's a line in the Shinshin Ming that says, all changes in this empty world are, uh, excuse me, all changes in this empty world seem real because of ignorance. This is where this is where you actually know that. You'll never understand that conceptually, or maybe you will. Maybe you can make a doctrine about it or something. But the conceptual mind, the conceptual mind's version of that is not what it means. What it means is right here, but it has to be wide open. The sensor, the sensor, sensorum has to be wide open, meaning free of filters, free of self, free of subject object, free of conception, free of agendas. Free of the need to analyze, to explain, to describe, to defend. And you can be free of all that, of course. But all changes in this empty world seem real because of ignorance. Why is this world empty? Because there are no objects in it. Does that mean there's nothing here? There's no thing here? No. There's neither something nor nothing here. There's not even a here, here. But it's not needed because it's never been needed because it's never been the case. So changes can only be relative. And it can only be conceptions, ultimately. Without time, change doesn't even make sense. And here you, you know the timeless. 
as primary, as very obvious, the only possibility. And experience occurs in, in time. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> experience occurs in and as the timeless, but experience creates the illusion of time. Time and experience seem, they go together. So, so timelessness doesn't exclude experience and inexperience, anything, any apparent thing can be experienced. Any apparent eventuality can be experienced. But in, unless you know its origin, you'll believe it to be real. So you, when you see everything's origin, which is no origin, but you see it, you can see it, then it changes everything. Takes you off the hook in a big way. It shows you what a farce all of the struggle has been, the suffering, the trying to end suffering, the trying to preserve some self-structure. All of it's been a farce. <laughs> And then you can play the game or not. It doesn't actually matter. Yeah, and this, this isn't something that stabilizes either because it, there's nothing to stabilize. It's um, it's neither stable nor unstable. Or I could say it's stable and, un, and unstable, but it's more proper, I think, to say really that there, that any quality that's attributed is ultimately a thought. So when we strip experience of qualities, what's left of experience? Experience is the, the, the existence of experience is defined by qualities. Just like the existence, the apparent existence of objects are defined by subject, by there being a subject. It's the relationship or the belief in a relationship that causes the illusion. And the illusion is perfectly okay as well, of course. How could it be other? But when you only see the illusion, something instinctual tells you they're suffering. Something to discover, uncover, rectify.
maybe the most daunting uh, thing about this is that you come to a place where um, there's nothing left to do. Then apparent doing can happen or apparent not doing can happen, but there's no buy-in. Because there's nowhere, there's nothing to do because there's nowhere to go. Going ends up being a thought. The freedom is in the paradox. The freedom is in living the paradox. That you don't take sides. There's no need to take sides with moving versus being still. And when there's when that scale is not tipped, then the truth is revealed, which has nothing to do with movement or stillness. I hope you're still out in the visual field. <laughs> That's the whole point of this exercise. The words don't matter. If it's if it's really challenging, which it, it certainly can be at first, you can almost like uh, time yourself, you know, just sort of lean out into the visual experience with your attention. See how long you can stay there before the mind chatters on or that something conceptual happens. Start taking notes about what's happening, self-commenting about the experience and don't beat yourself up when you can only do it for three seconds or 10 seconds. It's fine. Just like anything else, if you, if you practice, you'll definitely get better at it. But do be warned, the mind does not always like this. It'll start chattering on about like, oh, this is useless. This is not valuable. I can't do it, right? I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. And you'll believe it, right? If you believe that thought, sure. 
but certainly you can return your attention to the visual field and just notice, oh, wow, this time I was able to do it for like 10 seconds or maybe even longer. I don't know how long it was, kind of lost track of time. How are we doing on time, Chad? Seven minutes left. Okay. But yeah, anyone who's interested in this or finds some value in what we did, just go back through these exercises. This is the kind of thing where sustained effort, repeated effort with these very, very simple questions about where the edges of things are, where distances, all of it, um, with genuine curiosity and a willingness to just let your attention remain there, will will reap rewards for sure. It will change things. It will change your experience. But you kind of have to have all those things. If you're genuinely not curious about it, you're not going to do it probably. Um, but you also have to be discerning about when, when it starts to turn into a thought, when the mind gets activated or when attention bounces back into the mind rather than just that. And it'll start to, the last kind of hint I will give, I guess, I don't know if it's a hint, but it'll start to just stand on its own. It kind of gets its own legs, so to speak. Meaning the mind will get very quiet. Experience of a self, a body will just not be there experience of a world will not be there. But you can still stay there. You can just remain in it experientially. And it kind of carries itself then. Clarifies itself. And it becomes rather mm, fascinating. Let's say. Oh, the last thing I'll say is it can be helpful to do if, if, if your mind very quickly turns things into things, if it very quickly assumes space and distance and especially in familiar places like your own house, maybe. Um, many people do this in their own house with a simple object like a cup or a window or something. But if if your mind just gets too revved up with labels and analysis and stuff, try something like um, an unfamiliar place. Try nature, try trees, or try some abstract, something like abstract art. Something that it doesn't have labels really and maybe is even made by the artist specifically for this kind of purpose. Um, I would consider things like that. It may make it a little easier. Also, with your eyes closed, many people don't realize with your eyes closed, you do see, but it's very easy to go into an internal imagination if you have an internal visual experience or just to go into analysis. But if you just close your eyes, you'll notice shades and, you know, behind your eyelids, they may look grayish, brownish, uh, and darkish, but you'll notice the shades and tones and stuff. So you can also practice it with your eyes closed, but just make sure you know 
you're looking at the actual visual field instead of imagination or thoughts. Okay, that's it for the day with our talk. We'll come back a little later for Q&A. Thanks, everyone.